right, man, glad you're here. Good morning, and uh, for the next four, maybe even five, I'm not sure yet, but at least four, uh, you're going to hear this phrase, hey, take your Bible, your Bible app, turn to Romans 8. I uh, pray that in the, in the next month, your, uh, your uh, tablet or your uh, Bible will be underlined, will be highlighted, will be marked up. Uh, this, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while, but particularly after last week, when uh, last week, we got to see some cool stuff, very just stories all, all, all day long or all week long about uh, what happened last, uh, last week. It really at all the locations where one church in a number of different locations that meets to make much of Jesus. And last week when we saw just under 200 people profess Christ through baptism, we heard story after story from, uh, you know, from, uh, from couples getting baptized together to, uh, to uh, one of them, the kids got baptized in the first service and then dad came around and got baptized in the second service to, uh, there were some people watching online in the early service, uh, one of them actually prayed to receive Christ in, at home and then went and was like, man, I got to get up there and got baptized at this, this late service as well. So anyway, great stories. We'd still love to hear them. But what that reminded me of is God not only wants to do something uh, awesome uh, uh, in us, but he also wants to do something awesome through us, all right? So virtually every single person right there uh, that got baptized had something to do with the relationship that you've made with them, uh, an overture, an outreach, some way that you've ministered to them, loved on them. So great, great job. Keep doing that. Um, before we jump into Romans chapter eight, I need you to pray uh, with uh, the leadership here about something. We were approached several months ago uh, by Brevard Community Church uh, in Transylvania County about the possibility of adopting them and making them a Biltmore Church campus to be the Biltmore Church Brevard campus. And uh, the Brevard, uh, our Biltmore Church leadership, we've met, we've studied, we've prayed, uh, and so have they. And they let their church know that this was a possibility. They let them know on this past Monday. So I wanted to uh, let you guys know that that is a possibility. Still a lot of praying to be done, still a lot of studying to be done, a lot of discussions, a lot of meetings, all that stuff. But if you would just join us in prayer uh, right now, it looks like it very well could be a great win. You know, win, 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 win for the kingdom. Uh, it, could, it could be a win for getting the gospel out in Transylvania County even further. Further. And so again, we'll keep you abreast as developments are done. But again, as uh, we know you're a praying church. And so when you pray, if you would just pray for uh, the leaders of both, and if that would be what God wants uh, for his glory and for the spread of the gospel, then that is what would take place. All right. Especially you in Transylvania County, you pray a little bit extra hard. Okay. Cause we want to come see you. So take your Bibles. Romans uh, chapter eight is where we are going to, uh, going to be. And many think that this is the greatest chapter in the Bible, all right? In the Bible, many, it's like, this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, an old Welsh preacher among many, many quotes I could give you, but a 20th century Welsh preacher named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote about Romans in general and Romans 8 in particular. He said, it is one of the brightest gems of all. He said, the whole of scriptures, it is the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is this epistle to the Romans. And all of these, and that of all of these, Romans 8 is the brightest gem in the cluster. He's saying basically this, there's nowhere else in the Bible where we read more about God's love for you, what God has done because he loves you about your glorious future, about the actual power and the ability to actually pull off the Christian life, about how do you have hope during difficult times. Uh, some of you have got a couple of these verses like Romans 8, 28. You've got these like on a, on, on, a, on a coffee mug or you've got these on a needle point or something like that at home. And there are a few of those classic, awesome verses. But what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to go through every single one of those verses. 
And we're going to take, we're just going to take eight today. That's kind of what we do here at our church is we just kind of go verse by verse by verse through uh, different parts of the Bible. Sometimes we'll take a whole book. Sometimes we'll take a chapter. Sometimes we'll take a topic, but out of that topic, we will actually take a passage and stay right in there. It's just, it's called expositional or expository teaching. That's what we do. Basically I read the Bible. We talk a little bit about it, read some more of the Bible, talk a little bit more about it, illustrate it, make a story, talk a little bit, read some more. That's kind of what we do. And uh, again, the goal is that you would say, man, I can do that. I can do that. So the goal would be today that after we look at eight verses today, you're like, uh, man, I can do that. I've got this underlined. And I will say on the front end, though, the first eight to 11 verses here of all of the verses in this chapter, they're not the super easiest to understand because you're using a lot of language that sometimes we're not familiar with. So I worked real hard all week to be able to say, how can we simplify all this down into a couple of main thoughts that we can sort of leave church with today? But before we do that, let me try to set it up this way. There was a novel written by, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Stevenson. He wrote Jekyll and Hyde, all right? So Jekyll and Hyde is a fairly famous story, whether you've ever seen the, one of the movie adaptations of it or whether you've read the books or, or the Cliff Notes or Spark Notes or whatever. But here's basically what happens in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay. Dr. Jekyll is a chemist and he is, he's just, he's, he's, he's grieved about how he can, he, his, the evil that's on the inside of him. And he's just like, man, I just, I don't like some of the times. I don't like what I do sometimes. I don't like a lot of the stuff of what I do. And he's just, he's just on and on and on about that. And he's like, he's frustrated because it seems that inside of him is a bad part and a good part. And they're always warring against each other. So he develops a potion and this potion is supposed to separate the two parts of him so that the good part comes out by day. And then the bad part comes out by night. All right, so the good part is Dr. Jekyll. That's the good part. That's the part everybody respects. That's the people that tip their hat to them. That's the part. He's a respected member of society. But at night is Mr. Hyde. Hyde is, comes from, it's the idea of hideous or hidden, okay? And it's Mr. Hyde. He is the wicked part. And he comes out at night, and Mr. Hyde is a bad man. He's vindictive. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. He's a murderer. He is like that bad, 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 bad part. And he says at the end, he's like, you know what? He's, the problem was that the evil part of Dr. Jekyll was far more evil than he had ever imagined he was. And basically that is what contextualized Romans 8 is. Romans 8 comes after a Dr. And Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde chapter called Romans 7. Romans 7 is the Apostle Paul saying, I hate some of the stuff that I do. I want to do right, but when I want to do right, I find myself not doing what would be right, but then sometime when I know I shouldn't do this, I find myself doing that very thing. And so he gets to the end of chapter 7, and he is just exhausted. He's like, wretched man, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? And he calls it this body of death. Who will rescue me from this Mr. Hyde? Who will rescue me from this frustration of an endless cycle of New Year's resolutions and I'll never do that again and I'll be a better man and yet it may be victory for a season, maybe victory for a month, but always going back and always being defeated. Who will rescue me from that? That's basically the context of chapter eight. So for five chapters in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul all it is is just gospel, gospel, gospel. Righteous God, sinful man. We rebelled against God. And then justification by faith. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone. That's what one through five is. And then in chapter six to about eight, he starts being bluntly honest about, okay, if the gospel is really true, then what difference does it make in your struggle 
with character, character development, sinful tendencies, habits, destructive relationships. In other words, if the gospel, if this cosmic gospel is so true, why do Christians struggle so much with sin? Or to put it in our vernacular, why do you still struggle with some of the same old temptations that you had before you came to Christ? I came to Christ at 17. And so I had some patterns in my life already pretty mature and pretty developed that I've still, even to this day, I've got to keep an eye on. So if the gospel is true, how come we still struggle with those same temptations? How come we still fail? How, some, how come times we still just want to throw up our arms and quit? How come sometimes you know God wants you to pray, you know God wants you to read your Bible, but It's like, man, I just want to go over there and watch The Bachelor. I mean, or The Bachelor. How come I still, I thought I would be further along than now. That's really what the first couple weeks of chapter eight is about. It's like, how does God really change a person? All right. How does God take an adulterer and make him a family man? Okay. How does God take an addict and make them clean and whole and healthy? How does God do that? That's what we're looking at the first two weeks. So as we walk through this, let me just give you the first verse. And if if you're thinking, hey, I'm just, you know, I probably ought to memorize one verse. This first verse is top three of verses you need to memorize, all right? John 3, 16, maybe like one, this would be 1A, all right? So if, if nothing else happens within the next two weeks, if you can get Romans 8, verse 1, just memorize. Put it on a little card. Put it on your dashboard. Put it up there. All of a sudden, you'll see a lot of these principles come into effect. So here it is, and then I'm going to give you two statements. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore. Therefore is connecting it to the struggle of chapter 7. It's connecting it to the exhausting work of trying to make this Christian life work all on our own. It's therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Condemnation is a legal term. It means there's no more debt. There's no more, there's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation. But you got to be careful for those who are in, and that's a super key word, those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when we start this off, again, uh, the reason he starts off is because the struggle is if I continue to sin and I'm a Christian and the gospel has changed my life and Jesus died for me and rescued me and adopted me and I still sin, it is sure easy to feel that voice of condemnation come onto my life. And so he starts off this whole thing about there is now no condemnation. So here's the first statement. Be able to be able to say today, I, if I'm in Christ, now again, if you're not in Christ, then the only thing left is condemnation. Please understand that. I love you too much to simply go, hey, everybody's not condemned. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was condemned for you. Jesus was condemned for you. And if you are in Christ, then there's no condemnation left for you. Why? Because Jesus took the condemnation. But if you're not in Christ, then the Bible says you, sin still condemns us. So here's the gospel. The gospel in a nutshell is this. Jesus was condemned for us, so there's no condemnation left for us. The connotation here is not, there's no condemnation when you get saved, but then you can accrue it a little bit more as you go on. I found that a lot of Christians, including me, don't have nearly as difficult time believing God that there's no condemnation when I got saved. But when I still mess up sometime, I'm like, man, I know I I wasn't condemned for my past sins, but what about my future sins? Here's just one thought. When Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus said, when he put his hands out, he's like, it is finished. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And your sin debt got put on his shoulders. 
How many of your sins were future at that point? All of them were at that point. You're 2,000 years ago. You hadn't sinned yet. You hadn't been born yet. And yet he says, you know what? It is finished. What is finished? What is finished? All those sacrificial offerings. Now the Lamb of God has taken away your sin. So I'm going to give you a couple of theological words. You're like, why do I need to know these? What do... Our goal is to raise disciples. Our goal is to raise disciples. And one of the things we do is we don't use language that is unnecessarily burdensome. But when you have a Bible word, when you have a Bible word, there is no Bible word that is unnecessarily burdensome. It is your job to be able to sit there and go, I got to understand what that word is. And it's my job to do all I can to help you understand a great Bible word. And one of the greatest Bible words that you can get into your soul, the one that can help you with guilt and shame and what do I do when I fail again? What do I do when I lose my temper with my wife? What do I do when I have a bad business trip and go on that website again like I swore a thousand times I would never do? What do I do then? You need to understand some, you need to understand some Bible. And one word you need to understand is the word justification. Justification. Justification is what Paul has been talking about now for six to seven chapters so he could then say there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Justification is this. It's where we get our word justice from. And we like justice today, don't we? I mean, there's so many CSIs. I don't know how many. CSI LA, CSI you know, Boston, CSI Asheville. There's not really Nashville, but it could be awesome, all right? Law and order. We all like those. Why? Because we like it. We like it when justice is served. When justice is served, there's something on the inside of us like, that's good. That guy hurt somebody, he needs to take the perp walk, and they need to sentence him, and he needs to, go, needs to go do his time. That's justice. We like justice. Believe it or not, in an amazing cosmic way, the gospel is all about justice. But the flip of it is, we were the ones that were guilty. We were the ones who deserved to take the perp walk, and instead, Jesus did for us Jesus obeys the law perfectly. We disobey the law perfectly. But the all-knowing God of the universe comes out and says, I justify you. I declare you because Jesus paid the debt that you owed. So now he's condemned. It is finished. Now he's condemned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he's condemned, that means if you're in Christ, you're not condemned. You want to blow, blow your mind sometime. If you are actually in Christ and you've been justified, and there's no condemnation at all, then Jesus is, God is just as satisfied with you as he was satisfied with Jesus when he was sitting there feeding 5,000 people. When Jesus stood up and was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, if you're in Christ and God is pleased with Jesus, then he is pleased and satisfied with you. You're like, how does that even work? Jot down in your side notes somewhere, Romans 3, 24 and 25, and here's how it works. This is the in workings of what he's actually fleshing out here. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, there's the word, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, now here's another word, don't, this, we don't usually use a ton of these, but this is super key, who God put forth as a propitiation through his blood propitiation just means a payment that satisfies. It means that, you know what? The payment that Jesus made on the cross satisfied a holy and righteous God to say, I am satisfied with that. And so that's important. You know why it's important? Even as a Christian, 
It's important because some of you are already like, well, that's how I got saved, but now it's not helping me. It's not helping me love my wife better. Yes, it is. Because here's what happens. We think that the gospel we've talked, it's like the starter. It starts the engine and then I drive the car. But the gospel is not the starter of the Christian life only. It's like the fuel of the Christian life. And if you don't continually pour good fuel into that Christian life, then it's just going to bog down. For example, I got a diesel truck. If I put normal gas in there, it's going to jack that engine up. But if I put the right fuel in there, that thing will purr like a kitten. In the same way, all he's talking about here is make sure you put the right fuel in and the fuel of it is the gospel. Why? Because when you blow it, not if you blow it, when you blow it, you're going to be constantly attacked by messages of condemnation. You loser. You blew it again. You are such a failure. You think you're a Christian? Girl, you got baptized last week and you're already acting like that old way already and it's just Thursday. That stuff didn't mean anything. All you did is take a bath. All you did is get wet. All you did is pray a prayer. Those are the whisperings of condemnation. And you're like, well, you don't know about my past. You don't know some of the stuff I've done. Man, I had an abortion. I uh, got a divorce. Um, my last church said, you know, I need to be on the bench uh, for a while. And all I'm telling you is, you know what? That whispering, that's just wrong. Because what this verse says, you need to look more Romans 8.1. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation at all. It's gone. It's been eradicated. And again, some of you are like, it's not just my past, man. It's my present. I still kind of struggle. I still struggle with this. And I still struggle with that. And this habit and these relationships and this immorality, I still struggle with that. And all I'm telling you is the gospel app for that is Romans 8.1. That's the gospel app for that. That means the Lamb of God, the Son of God, died for that. He was condemned so you would not have to be. And the reason that's important, even as a Christian, is when you fail, if you don't understand the gospel and you just think, and again, I'm just I'm gonna go ahead and say it because some of you grew up that way. I don't know who you are exactly that grew up, but I've been in the mountains now 11 years. And I know some of you grew up in an environment that basically was outside in Christianity. It was outside in. You can form the outside, and the outside could be a bunch of rules. It could be a bunch of lists. It could be the simple one that everybody knows. You know what? Don't chew, don't smoke. Uh, what does it go again? Don't drink, don't chew, don't go out with girls that do. I can't, I can't remember the list now because the list just grows. It just grows. But if you, do, if you do these things or don't do these dirty six or these dirty dozen, then you're a good Christian. The problem with that is the Bible says that actually, you know what? Our sin comes from in here and then goes outside. And so if there's never been a heart change, all this stuff does is just, this is just sin management is all this is. I'm just trying to manage my sin. I'm playing with my sin. At the same time, there's never been a heart change. But if I understand the gospel, then God is slowly, little by little, changing my heart. So when I blow it, I don't run from God in my shame. I run to God in my repentance. And that is super key. Proverbs 24 says this. It says, the righteous man, he will fall down seven times. What's the difference? He will get back up. You know how the gospel's permeated your heart? It's not perfection. It's not like you got it all together. The question is, what do you do when you sin? If it doesn't bother you, by the way, if you're like, ah, no big deal, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, or whatever. If it never bothers you, if there's no grieving over sin, if there's no heartbreak over sin, if you just, then either number one, you're not in Christ, you're not in Christ, or it's been so long since you heard the voice of God in your life, you just can't even hear it anymore. It's like, and it's just like, I love you, come here. You blow him off. I love you, come here. Blow him off. I love you, come here. Blow him off. Pretty soon all it is is a whisper and you can barely hear God. But chances are if there's no grief, there's none of that at all, then there's been no heart change. And so what this tells us is, again, we can, uh, 
He was condemned for me. And you're like, well, I feel condemned. I feel condemned. I just feel condemned. I don't mean to get, I don't mean to be rude with you, but listen, your feelings cannot be the Lord of your life. Please hear, your feelings cannot be the Lord of your life. Now I'm learning, I'm learning. I'm not a, I'm not an emotional person. So one of the things God's been teaching me is feelings are okay. Feelings are okay. You don't have to be a robot. A robot. Feelings are okay. But I still, feelings cannot be the Lord of your life. Because you know, you know what changes feelings? Facts change feelings. Now, I'm not saying, you, guys, just a quick freebie. Don't, don't bring that out when you're in an argument with your wife, okay? Just as a bad plan. But in the big picture, big picture, facts change your feelings. You're like, nah, I feel the way I feel. I feel the way I feel. That's not entirely true. I'll give you an example. If somebody came up to you today and said, man, I'm sorry. We just found out. We just found out somebody wiped out your bank account, wiped out your 401k, wiped out every part, just wiped out your whole bank. Man, your feelings, my feelings too. I'd be like, no, I worked hard. You would be, you'd be grieving. You'd be sad. But if somebody comes in five minutes later, oh man, my mistake, my mistake. I didn't mean to say you got your whole 401k and your whole bank account wiped out. What I meant to say, what I meant to say is somebody anonymously put a million dollars into your bank account. See, I got it right here. I got your bank account right here. A million dollars. Would that change your feelings? Yeah, it would change your feelings. You're like, I'm not, I'm not sad anymore. I'm happy. Drinks on me. Whatever you would say, you're like, this is a great thing. Your feelings would be changed. So point is this. Romans 8.1 is a gospel fact. It is a gospel fact. And so you quote the facts to your feelings long enough, eventually your feelings will change. In Romans 8.1, you need to quote to yourself all the time. So when you fall, Romans 8.1, that helps you run to God in repentance. Tony Evans says, you know what? In a house, there's two dogs. There's the grace dog and the law dog. Grace dog and a law dog. The law dog, when the master comes in, the law dog runs from the master because he knows he's pooped in the kitchen and he doesn't want the master to hit him. He doesn't want the master to beat him. He doesn't want the master to hit him with a newspaper. He's afraid of the master. But a grace dog, a grace dog, he might've still pooped in the kitchen, but he runs to the master because he has a relationship with the master. He knows the master loves him. And God wants you to be a grace dog. He wants you to run to him, not from him. That's all of Romans 8.1. You're like, man, it's going to take forever to get through eight verses. We're going to go a little quicker now. So first one is this. Verse two. Verse two says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Like, I don't feel free. Matter of fact, some of, this, some of that temptation that you sometimes go through, you're like, man, free is the last word I would use to describe what I feel when that alluring temptation, when that particular person, when that particular situation, when that comes on the screen, I don't feel free. We're going to talk about that. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Keeping your mind already, you're going to see two laws, he says, are both true. Here's what verse three says. For God has done, for God has done. God, what, who's done it? God's done that. God's done that. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinning in the likeness of sinful flesh, but and for sin. That's the gospel. Jesus came, substituted himself for you, for your sin. Substitution is the gospel. 
He condemned sin in the flesh. And then one more verse. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, it's not just about you and I being positionally holy before God. That's awesome. We love the songs about our identity. But our identity is supposed to lead us to make a change in our activity. Why? Because we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here is, uh, first one is like, I'm not condemned. And I want you to think it, and I want you to say it, and I want you to write it down, even if you don't quite believe it yet. And it's the idea is this. is according to the Bible, if you're in Christ, then you can say with some confidence, I've been set free. I've been set free. I've been set free. I was like, what does that even, what does that even mean? That seems that seems very churchy. Let me give you one more churchy phrase and just jot it down because this is a, this, I've been thinking about this for like four weeks now. The gospel, not only, the gospel is not only for our justification. Okay? Justification is a one-time event. When you came to Christ, boom, you were immediately justified by the all-knowing, almighty God of the universe because of what Christ has done. That is a one-time, immediate, immediate event. You were justified. You were adopted into his family. Those happen immediately. But the gospel is not just for your justification. It is also for what we're going to just call your sanctification, which means the way Christ is growing and working on your character and making you a better husband, a better wife, a better employer, a better student, a better employee. That's sanctification. And that is going to take until you go to heaven. That's that time where God brings glory to himself by changing a people. Changing a people saying, you know what? The gospel shows that Jesus is generous. And so a church is going to be generous with its community. He says, you know what? God was patient with you. So you're going to be patient with that extra grace required employee you got at work. As the gospel gets its roots into you, then the character changes. And that's when it really begins to change. So as we look at this, I've been set free. Verse one, talking about penalty. Verse two, talking about power. And then verse three, he says, the righteous requirement of the law, because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You're like, what does that even mean? Here's what that means. It means basically, because people, people don't understand. People think the Ten Commandments were for you and I to follow the Ten Commandments in order that God would then be pleased with us and say, okay, you're now my son. You're now my daughter. That's not the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments, and really all the commandments, was twofold. One, it is sometimes like a map. Sometimes it's like a map. In other words, it's good to follow God's rules because it leads to human flourishing and to our joy. So when God gives us rules about marriage or God gives us rules about coveting or whatever, that's not to take away our joy. That is for our joy. But it is a map. But the main thing is it's also a mirror. It's a mirror so that when you and I look into the law and we see a reflection of ourselves, we see the way that we have come up short of the law and realize we need a savior. Okay, let me, let me put it a different way. Suppose you had a mirror, and this would be like the worst mirror ever, correct? Or if you had a mirror that every time you looked at it, it gave back to you all the places that you were imperfect in your body shape. I mean, whatever your body shape is, you got in front of that mirror and it showed you the perfect body in every place you were out of alignment. It was like, that's where you're out of alignment. It's like, man, I need a little bit more. I need some, I need some of this you know, to come up into my chest a little bit and I need some of this to go down to my ankles because I don't have any ankles. I need to go to leg day at the gym, whatever. Every time you looked at the mirror, it's like your fault here, your fault. That's what the God, that's what the 10 commandments do. That's what he did to Paul. Paul's like, man, I was doing pretty good until I saw that, that whole thing about coveting. 
because I could hide this stuff on the outside where everybody thought I was a good fundamentalist, but then now that I look on the inside and I see this thing about coveting and I didn't line up very well and God said, you know what, I'm now a person that, that covets. So listen to the theology behind this. Jesus released us from the law by being born into our flesh and living the life we were supposed to live, which was to obey God's law. That's what that verse is meaning. And then he gave us life as a sin offering, a sin offering because we did not live the way we were supposed to live. In other words, put it this way, if verse one is true, if verse one is true, then it will be accompanied by a changing, a changing life. Let me say it again. I don't want to give false assurance that, hey, everybody's in Christ and just nobody's condemned. Please don't take that today. The connection between verses two, three, and four in verse one is this. There's no condemnation, but the sign that you're in Christ is that there's some stuff that's changing in your life. There's some character development that's going on. You hear some people say every once in a while, it's like, man, you're different than you were six months ago. They might not be able to pinpoint it. They might not be able to articulate it, but they're like, man, you know what? You don't lose your temper as quickly with the kids as you used to. Man, you know, you actually helped that guy on the side of the road to help change his tire when before you would have driven right past that person. You know, before it was all about you. It was all about you and where you wanted to go out to eat and what you wanted to do on family vacation. But now, you know what? I noticed you're actually asking what we want to do. So if verse one is true, then it'll be accompanied by a changing life in some levels of freedom. Some levels of freedom. In other words, um, and here's the way we used to do it. We used to do it, uh, and it's still a good question, but one of the evangelism questions when I got trained in evangelism was this. You would ask of people, it's a good question. It is a good question. Don't misunderstand me. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Now, that is a good question and you need to know the answer to that. Your answer doesn't need to be, hey, you're a good old boy or hey, your grandmama you know, went to church or your daddy was a preacher. That doesn't need to be your answer. Your answer in that case would need to be, you know what? I've embraced Christ by faith and through repentance and Jesus paid for my sin. That's why I'm... But another question besides if I stood before God, why should he let you into my heaven Another question might be, if you're actually in Christ, what difference is that going to make when you wake up tomorrow morning? If you're actually in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, what difference does that make when you walk into the schoolhouse tomorrow? If you're actually in Christ and the Spirit of God fills in you and you have no condemnation at all and all that stuff that you say is true, what difference is that going to make in the way that you run your business? That's just as good a question because here's the, here's the formula. Your identity changes and then your activity changes and it's in that order. Fundamentalism is the other way around, by the way. Religion is actually the other way around. Change your activity. Be a good boy. Be a good little girl. Please hear me if you didn't hear it earlier. The gospel is not, the gospel is not, hey, God is making bad people good. That's not the gospel because the gospel is we're all bad. The gospel is we're all bad. Not just bad, we're all dead. The gospel is he makes dead people alive. That's the gospel. And so when you look at it, it's like, all right, Activity changes because the identity changes. I'll just give you one and we'll move on. John chapter eight, famous woman of the, uh, famous story of the woman caught in adultery. Everybody knows that story, stones, all this kind of stuff. Take some time sometime and look at the order in which Jesus speaks to the woman. When Jesus speaks to the woman at the end of the story, her, you know, the whole thing, they're, you know, they're trying to condemn her and all this stuff and he writes in the sand. Nobody knows what he writes in the sand, all this stuff. But at the end, what he says is this. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's identity. Neither do I condemn you. That's identity. No condemnation. Comma, now go and sin no more. The identity, she was changed. If he had just said, 
Don't sin anymore. Stop sleeping around. That would not have been lasting change. That would have been condemnation. Stop it. You're loose. Stop doing that. But he said, no, I don't condemn you. Identity changed, which leads to go and sin no more, which means my activity actually can change. You're like, man, that just sounds easy. That sounds super easy. That sounds, it's not easy. It's a war. You're like, why is it so hard? Well, uh, um, look in your Bible and you can, again, I want you to underline different stuff in here. And a word that is used in verse three, verse four, verse five, verse six, and verse seven is the word flesh. You're like, well, what's the deal with my flesh? flesh. Don't think epidermis, all right? Don't think skin. Let me give you a definition or let me give you a description. Um, flesh, because you kind of see it in a bunch of different ways in here, uh, either alluded to or actually talked about, all right? It's your mind, your body, it's your spirit apart from Jesus. If you are a Christian, the Bible teaches you have two natures. Listen up, listen up. This is going to, a lot of you are like, oh, that's why that is struggle. That's why I have such a, man, that's why it just like, it's like a tractor beam. That's why that temptation just like, it's sucking me in. Because the Bible teaches you have two natures. Okay. You got the new me. The new me is some of you that's a week old. You came to Christ and the Bible does some amazing things about you. It says some of you, you're adopted as a son or daughter of almighty God. You're clean. You're forgiven. You've got a new song in your heart. You've got a new name even. God's even given you a new name, a new heart, new spirit, saved by Christ, resurrected with Christ. That's that part that wants to do right, that wants to please God, that wants to love people, that wants to do all that. Okay. Um, it's the part that some of you even last week are like, man, I got to do that. I don't know. I just got to go make sure that happens. That's the, that's the part. It's like, I want to do what God wants me to do. That's the new you. But the second part, the second part that is just as true is the old me. The old me is the sin nature. It's called in the Bible, the old man, the old self. And it's that flesh part of me that just doesn't ever want to do what's right. It's that part that doesn't want to please God. It's that part that doesn't want to serve other people. It wants to serve himself. It wants to serve herself. It's the one that just continues to struggle and that old inclination. And here's what you got to understand. The old inclination, that old propensity to sin is still there. When you come to Christ, that does not get completely removed. Can we just agree that chapter seven, Paul, the apostle Paul is a Christian? I mean, I read a couple of commentaries and I'm like, well, he's not a Christian there because, you know, nobody would struggle with sin. Well, Thank you for all the perfect people, all right? For the rest of us imperfect people, it's like, I can relate to Romans 7, all right? Romans, the rest of you, I mean, you're on a bullet train to hell anyway if you think you're a perfect person. So I'm saying the imperfect train, the imperfect train's like, you know what? Chapter 7, I can relate to. Because chapter 7 is real. Chapter 7 is, how many times have we thought, well, I wish I'd have done that. God wanted me to do that, and I didn't do it. Or I didn't want to do that, and I went ahead and stepped right through the door anyway. I hate myself. I feel bad about it, and we do it. That's Romans 7. The answer to Romans 7 is Romans 8. So when you look at, when you look at this, uh, we're going to look at this in the weeks ahead, but uh, or try to unpack this a little bit every time. Think about it this way. Uh, your old self, while it's still there, it has been unplugged. That's really chapter 6. Chapter 6 says you're dead to sin. You're like, I don't feel dead to sin. Think of it like a toaster. Okay, you might have a toaster that can do toast great on your counter, but when you came to Christ, that old self got crucified. In other words, unplugged. The problem is we oftentimes, I oftentimes make the choice to go plug it back in. I just plug it right back in, go back to the same old pattern. And by the way, if you come to Christ late, some people think, man, it's a bad testimony. Everybody's got these great testimonies. Mine's boring. Mine, mine is, you know, I got saved at 11 years old and I never really rebelled against God that much. And I still love Jesus. That's such a boring, that's an awesome testimony. Because what happens is you don't get some of the ruts, the destructive ruts that some of us get when we come to Christ late. 
As I said earlier, some of the ruts that I got early on for 17 years, those still kick my butt sometimes, still do, and they're there, and they're there, and if I don't watch them, they're dangerous. And so when you look at this, let me put it in a couple different ways. Um, Fundamentalism, and again, I, I believe in the fundamentals, but typically what fundamentalism does is focus on managing sin and trying to trying to, to manage it. My friend Joby Martin, he says, managing your sin is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It's like you're trying to hold the beach ball underwater, and, and, and how long you can hold it underwater is based on a bunch of variables. You know, uh, you know, you got, you got lotion on your hands, how big the waves are, you know, how strong you are. But sooner or later, no matter how strong you are, if you're trying to manage sin from the outside in, pretty soon, boom, that thing's just going to pop up. And when it pops up, man, it just doesn't like leak up, all right? It just doesn't come up a little bit. It just blows up. That's what happens when you manage sin. What the gospel says is Jesus has taken a knife to that balloon and ripped a hole in it. It's still there, but the power is gone. And so let me give you a couple of things. Like, okay, how do I actually make this work? Let me give you two illustrations and we'll close up. Um, and then we'll, we'll do the last few verses too. Uh, I, was, I was thinking, I was like, man, I need a, I need a store. Here's, here's an illustration. Came on the, I came in on a plane yesterday. We, we flew in and, and flew into Atlanta. You know, I think you gotta go to, if you're going to go to heaven, you got to go to Atlanta, I think. But I'm just saying, I said, man, really? Atlanta. So we, uh, so anyway, we go through Atlanta and, and you know, and we're taking off and the guy, the guy I'm traveling with, he starts telling me this story. He's like, that's my story. That's my story. Cause he makes the point. He's like, you got two laws. You got two laws. You got the law of gravity. And he got the law of aerodynamics. The law of gravity is true. What goes up must come down. And you can deny it. You can say, I don't like the law of gravity. It's unfair. But in order to beat the law of gravity, there's a second law, and that is the law of aerodynamics. That somehow some formula of thrust and weight and push and all this stuff, it's not that the law of aerodynamics denies the law of gravity. It doesn't deny it. It's still true. It doesn't deny it. It defies it. It says there's a greater law, and that greater law says even though what goes up must come down, the law of aerodynamics, I'm going to superimpose that on that, and it, what goes up can stay up for a while. The same way, you can deny all you want to. There ain't no law of sin and death. I'm not got no old self. And you just go on falling to your sin, living in defeat, living in discouragement. Or you can say, yeah, there's a law of sin and death that still lives in me. But there's a law of the spirit of life and the spirit of God lives in me. And I'm going to go with that law. And I'm not going to deny the fact that I've got to watch my old sin nature. But that new nature, that new song, that new heart that God put in me, I'm going to let that not deny it. I'm going to let that defy my old self. And it, listen, here's the, here's the point. The whole point is nothing changes until the thinking about it changes. Can we just agree on that one last point? Nothing, no lasting point is going to change. No lasting change is going to happen until our thinking about it is different. You're like, well, I got to see that in the Bible. Last few verses. Here it is. Okay. These are highlighted, not in the Bible. They're not highlighted. They're highlighted for us. So for those who live according to the flesh, and you're going to see kind of a pattern here. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. By the way, Colossians 3 says the same thing. It just says set your hearts, but it's the same thing. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. 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 When you think about death, what do you think of? You think about loss, and you think about grief, and you think about emotion, and 
think all of us, if we're just a little bit honest, could say, you know, some of the worst decisions that I've ever made, the ones that have caused me the most consequence in my life. You know what? I wasn't thinking God thoughts at all. I wasn't thinking about God. I wasn't thinking about justification. I wasn't thinking about adoption. I wasn't thinking about the gospel. I wasn't thinking about the cross. I wasn't thinking about God's love for me. You know what I was thinking about? And you can lay it down. That's what he's saying. For that you set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit. I mean, who doesn't want life and peace? Anybody in here was like, you know, life and peace. Eh, I'll audit that class. No, that's what we want. That's what we want. That's what God wants for you. Verse seven and eight, last two verses. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then the summation, this will be the last one. For those who are in the flesh, you're in the flesh, you just, it's not that you might not please God, it's just you, it's you can't please God. So let's put it down where you left. Picture yourself at a fork in the road. Okay, come to an intersection, you come to a fork in the road, and you are facing that biggest area of defeat that you have. And you know what it is. I'm not going to ask you again. I'm not going to ask you to put it on a rock. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to put it on a piece of paper. I'm not going to ask. No, just think. What is that one area that is the biggest area of defeat for you? It's beaten you many times before. It's got a long resume of victory over you. Could be a habit. Could be a, a person. Could be just simply a lack of passion. It's like, man, you know, I'm just blase in my walk, and all of a sudden weeks turned into months, months turned into years, and here I am, and I hadn't opened my Bible except for church in a, in a year. If all you do is go by your past resume, your past resume says, dude, you're going to fail again. You're going to fail again. You can't win. It's always going to be like this. Any victory you have is just temporary. You might have a little season of victory. You might have a little testimony you can share with your kids. But bottom line is that's going to last like two weeks, maybe three weeks. And at some point, in some point, you've got to say, that is not true. That's a lie. And I have to, it's not just identifying it as a lie. I've got to replace it with something that is true. Remember the whole story where Jesus says, yeah, if you go in there and you kick it out of his house, kick somebody out of his house, if you don't put something in that house, they're going to come back in that house stronger than they were before. That's a spiritual principle. It's if you take something out of your life, you better replace it with something that's good and wholesome and great. And here's what you replace that with. There is no condemnation. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. I'm not a slave to sin. Sin does not have power over me. So for us, that might just, for you get Romans 8.1, Talking about it with your kids on the way home. If you got kids, they learn the same Bible verses today. So let me give you an, let me give you an example, and then I'm going to give you a prayer, and we'll be done. I told you this a couple years ago, and this actually happened. But a few years ago, we moved the Frank family. We moved to a new house. All right, it's a little bit closer. It's a lot more convenient. It's a better house for us. All that kind of stuff. But before, here's basically what for eight years. For eight years, when I would leave the office, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for eight years. When I left the church, I would go out of the church, I would take a left, and then I would go down here to uh, Long Shoals, and I would take a left. So virtually every single time, it, whatever, 6.15, I leave the office, I go out here, I take a left, and then I go to the Long Shoals, Clayton, and I take another left. I put my blinker on, I get in the left-hand turn lane, I wait for the light to change, and then I turn. So for eight years, I could do it, I didn't even have to think about it. Didn't have to, I could be on the phone, I could be texting, I know you shouldn't, but you could be doing whatever that is, and it was such a part of my life, it was such a part of my habit, it was the pattern in which I lived by. If I was distracted, I could still do it. And then we move. And when we move, we move over to Mills River. And so now the way that I get home is I take a left out of the church like usual, but then I go up there to that light, and instead of taking a left, I take a right. As embarrassing as it is, I can't tell you how many times the first four, five, or six weeks, 
I would take a left out of the office. I would go down to that light. I'd be preoccupied with something. I would get in the left-hand turn lane, and I would start going down long shoals before I realized, like, this is not the way home anymore. This is not the way home. I don't live over there anymore. I live over there, and so I'd have to make the U-turn. And so for like six weeks, the old pattern said turn left, and so I had to intentionally turn right. Put the blinker on, turn right, turn right. Why? Because I had changed addresses. I don't live that way anymore. Listen to me. When you came to Christ, you had some patterns. You had some ruts. You had some patterns that had been drilled into you for some of us for years. Years of defeat, years of capitulation, years of falling to that same thing. And so every, you come to that intersection, and there it is again, and it's pulling you left so bad. And if you don't get Romans 8.1 down and say, you know what? Left is death. Left is death. I don't live left anymore. God changed my address. My address is now in Christ, okay? It's not in Adam. If I turn left, that's a bad sign. When I turn left, that's death. But I'm turning right because my address is there, and I've got a new home, and that's life, and that's peace. And so I'm going to take a right. Now, it might take weeks. But after a while, you won't even have to think about it anymore. You're like, why would I take a left? Why would I take a left? I haven't lived there in years anymore. I'm going to take a right. And so that right is all about saying, you know what? There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So I hear the baby crying, and I made some of y'all cry. So let me just, let me give you a prayer. Here's my, here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. Prayer for change. Don't write it down because it's going to be on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff here in an hour or two, whatever. Just listen to it. Help me, God. This is just a prayer for change. You're like, where'd you come up with that prayer? I just looked in the mirror. So I just like, that's what I want. That's what I want to happen personally, and that's what I want to happen for us. Help me, God. Thank you that your grace towards me is not based on my activity, but on Christ's activity. That's Romans 8.1. Okay? My identity changed, then my activity changed. My activity did not change my identity. My identity is being a daughter who's been loved and adopted and cherished and precious in God's sight. Because I know that and I'm grounded in that, then my activity changes. You know what? I don't have to act that way anymore because I'm not that person anymore. Truly change me for your glory and my joy. I mean, Christians, we ought to be the happiest people. We ought to be the most joyful people because we're running through the stuff that our Father wants to give us. I know, I know you want to, and I know I need you to. Thank you that with your help, things can be different. In Jesus' name, amen.